Father, I ask now that you forgive us where we fail you. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles tonight to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 8. Hebrews chapter number 8. Last week, we started with the, an introduction to these messages that, uh, that we'll be bringing for the next four or five weeks concerning the Lord's Supper. We talked a little bit about the Lord's Church and the importance of us understanding why we are what we are as Baptists as independent Baptists, as unaffiliated independent Baptists, and the importance of doing things according to the New Testament pattern. When we come to Hebrews chapter number 8, we find here it's speaking about the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament priesthood. And, of course, all of the book of Hebrews pertains to that, speaking of the excellency of Christ. But tonight I want you to notice, beginning in verse number 4, especially just the last part of verse number 4, where he says that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but tonight we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about what it is, when it was... Um, when it was started, where it was instituted, who was present, and why it was instituted by the Lord. And we'll just do a review of these things and then dig into some of the details more in the messages that that's to follow. The first thing that we need to think about is what it is. And by that, I'm talking about the nature of of the ordinance, the number of ordinances, we need to think about that, and the need for the ordinances. As we just read from the book of Hebrews, and uh, as the writers of the New Testament bear out in several other places, symbolism has always played an important part in the transmission of truth. We go all of the way back to the Old Testament where there were the sacrifices, the offerings, the feast days, and all of these pictured some various aspect of the person and work of Christ. All of them were to be observed in a detailed manner. By that I mean nothing was left to chance, nothing was left to the whims of man, it was God himself who carefully and clear, clearly prescribed every detail. So when he says to Moses regarding the tabernacle, I want you to make everything according to the pattern that I showed you, uh, that's exactly what he meant. He was not at liberty to say, you know, I really think we, we want the structure to be uh, longer or wider or maybe smaller 
maybe maybe we want to use a different kind of wood in place of the wood that God had chosen or instead of badger skins maybe you know he thought well it'd be a whole lot easier to use a skin from some other animal but he was not at liberty to change any of those details and the reason that was so is because every detail, whether it was a dimension, whether it was a, a part of the structure itself, uh, whatever, whatever piece of furniture it was or whatever they did, all of it in some way spoke about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we refer to them as shadows and types of things to come. Now... Uh, Naturally, there in the Old Testament, there were many different sacrifices and offerings. But when we come to the New Testament and the Lord's church, there are only two ordinances. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of those were designed by the Lord himself. The apostles didn't just come up with the idea, you know, I think we need to do this or we need to do that. But rather is something that the Lord himself instituted and both of them convey spiritual truth concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about man's ignorance, we know that man needs to be instructed. When we think about man's forgetfulness, we know that man needs to be reminded. When we think about how often we become uh, apathetic and just lax and, uh, and, and, and our worship degenerates into something that is dull and boring and old hat, we need to be inspired. And that's what these ordinances do. They instruct us, they remind us, and they inspire us. Before we go into detail, I want to talk a little bit about the word, uh, uh, the ordinance itself, because we, we often use that word, and those, you know, those of us have been saved a number of years, we, we've heard that word, and, and yet a lot of times we really don't understand exactly what we're talking about, and we need to. It simply means, simply defined as that which is ordered or commanded. But th that could have to do with a lot of things. Well, that could have to do in one sense with everything that is ordered or commanded in the Bible. But we're not talking about everything in the Bible that is commanded or, or ordered. We're talking about what is called the ordinances of the church. And the two that I mentioned, my Old friend Davis Huckabee wrote a book and several books several years ago, and and uh, and I don't agree with Brother Huckabee on on a lot of things, but when it comes to the New Testament Church, uh, he is absolutely brilliant on that. And uh, he wrote in regards to the usage of the word ordinance. He said, in Christian usage, it refers to a divinely instituted. Right, which conveys truth through symbolism. And then he goes on to add, in studying the New Testament account of the church, we find, now, now listen carefully because it's important that you hang on to what he's about to say. We find besides moral duties, certain acts commanded by its founder 
significant of certain truths enjoined on the members of the church, and such acts are called ordinances. Now, notice he's making mention of two different things here. There are those moral responsibilities that we have that are set forth in the Bible. That would have to do with any obligation that we incur as a result of the commandments that God has given us. That is our moral obligation. But a matter of morality is a matter of being right regardless of what else is going on around it. In, in other words, it's the nature of, of something that is moral. It is intrinsic. It is, a, it, it is a, a duty that we all have. But whenever it comes to the ordinances, they are commands given by the Lord, but they become significant, important, and so forth only because they're commanded. You see, a moral responsibility is a responsibility with, without, you know, being expounded uh, upon by a preacher or commanded by a preacher. It, it, it is just what is morally right by nature. That's what it is, a moral responsibility. I hope I'm not losing you here, but it's important that you understand the difference because if we don't, then we use this word ordinance in the, you know, the broader sense that it could mean anything the Lord commanded. And that's why some take as one of the ordinances uh, uh, the Lord's Day, for example. They claim that's an ordinance of the Lord. And uh, somebody else says foot washing is, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But you see, you just go on and on and on with this. But when it comes down to, to the nature of the ordinances, the moral duties are intrinsically holy and, 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 and they're right regardless but the the positive commands that God gives here be, that we call ordinances are right because they're commanded. And so the Lord says, this is what I want you to do. And he describes the manner, the method in which we are to follow out these commands. Now, over the years, a problem developed whenever it comes to the Lord's Supper and uh, and, and the problem had to do with the word sacraments. And if you use the word sacraments uh, in the classical sense, uh, you can use that word without doing any discredit to what the Bible teaches. In other words, it's not something that is necessarily a bad word in and of itself. But whenever you use it as the Roman Catholics did, they took the word sacraments and used it to mean that which imparts saving grace. And now you have a whole different ballgame. This is something entirely different because whenever we think about the Lord's Supper, communion or baptism or whatever, they say that is, those are some of the things that are necessary to impart saving grace. And, uh, of course, they claim that there are uh, seven, I believe it is that the Catholics claim, seven different ordinances that we're obligated to teach. Uh, the Salvation Army comes along and they say, oh, no, there are no ordinances that we're obligated to, to, to keep. Zilch, none. And then in between those two, you've got a lot of other ideas as how many ordinances there are the most common the most common one i think 
that is a bone of contention with a lot of people has to do with foot washing and it arises out of this statement in John 13 verse 14 and uh, the Lord said if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. So somebody comes along and they say, look there, the Lord commanded that. He ordered that. That makes it, uh, that makes it an ordinance, just like the Lord's Supper and, uh, and just like, just like baptism. Well, the problem is we have to consider the details of it. And if you're going to embrace that idea, then you have to make that all inclusive of everything the Lord told us to do, right? I mean, you can't just take that one because he didn't tell us just wash feet and everything else will be all right. I mean, we're to love one another, pray for one another. We're to, you know, we're to follow the Christian disciplines, that is, the, in regards to prayer and Bible study and things of, of that nature. And so that just opens a, opens a, 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 a door of in, in, unendless commandments that God has given to us. So how do we exclude this then from the ordinances? Well, when we look at the, at the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, you'll notice they have something in common that's not found with foot washing. And that is that both of them in some way speak about the person and work of Jesus Christ concerning our salvation. Washing feet. You remember that was instituted there in the upper room. They come in the, in the room, it was a custom in those days that, you know, that they wash one another's feet, but the disciples came in, they, they totally ignored that custom. And, and by the way, they had just had an argument. They'd been bickering among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, and so the Lord washed their feet as a, as a word picture, so to speak, the, to show them that the greatest is the one that takes the position of a servant among you. That's the greatest person. So that was the purpose of it. It had nothing to do with being a picture of salvation in any way whatsoever. And so that's what sets the two ordinances apart from all of the other commands is that those two ordinances not only are commanded by the Lord and not only are they commanded by the Lord as we'll see in a little bit, for the corporate body rather than individuals, but both of them speak about and picture in some way the person and work of Christ in regards to our salvation. Well, that brings up the, the next uh, question, and that has to do with when it was instituted. The first mention of the Lord's Supper is found back in Matthew chapter number 26. We don't have time to read all of uh, these verses, but if we pick up the story in verse number 17, Matthew 26 and verse number 17. And now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Hang on to that word. We're going to talk about it. And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy home. 
with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me, and the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, and woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for it had been good for that man to have not been born. And then Judas, which betrayeth him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou sayest. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it. And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now this is the first reference to it in the New Testament. It's the evening before Christ is to be crucified. He's meeting with his apostles and institutes this wonderful ordinance. And notice as he does so that he uses material things to illustrate spiritual truth, the bread and the fruit of the vine. And next week or the next week, one of those two, we're going to talk about the elements of the Lord's Supper, each one of those. But notice here that he uses these common things to illustrate glorious spiritual truth. And it, it's no accident that this was taking place during the, uh, the, the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Christ is our Passover. The historical event of the Passover is found back in Exodus chapter number 12. No doubt you'll remember that whenever the children of Israel were in Egyptian bondage, God said, let my people go, and they refused. And so God sent one plague after another after another, trying to convince them that they were fighting a losing battle in resisting his will for his people. And the king refused to let them go. Well, in, in, the, in the very final uh, uh, plague that came upon them was the death of the firstborn. Now, if that wouldn't get your attention, I don't know what does. And you'll remember that the, the, the Jews could be exempt from that by what? The applying of the blood on the doorpost. And it is in the application of the blood. And when the death angel pass by, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so this is, was the, the, the Passover being instituted then as a result to commemorate that great event, their deliverance. And every year the Jews observe the Passover. Now what the Passover pictured, of course, is Jesus Christ, the shedding of His blood, and the deliverance that He brings to us. So just as the Jews look back upon their deliverance from bondage, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're looking at what Jesus Christ did for us to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And so 
the, the Old Testament Passover was a shadow or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it was instituted, it was at that particular time of the year. Well, that brings us to the place where it was instituted. Well, we just read here uh, a little while ago that he's talking about being in an upper room or in a guest chamber, as it's described. It was a large room that was furnished and prepared, according to, uh, to Mark, uh, the historian Edersham, he claims, and I don't know exactly why, but he claims that this is the same house that belonged to the parents of John Mark in Acts chapter 12 and verse number 12. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it really doesn't matter because the emphasis, when we talk about the place, the emphasis is not so much on the house or the building where they met as it is the city in which they were, and that was in Jerusalem. They had traveled the two miles from Bethany. You'll remember that they were there with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and so they traveled the two miles from there to Jerusalem. And and as they journey to Jerusalem, it's there that he observes the Lord's Supper. The significance of that is that many long years before in that very geographical location, you'll remember, that Abraham brought his son Isaac and offered him up as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And now we see God himself offering up his son as the sacrifice for our sins. So here it is in that same place in Jerusalem. And that probably means nothing to most people today but it meant everything to those to those Jews and even Jews of this day realizing the significance of that holy place there in Jerusalem well that brings us to another question who was present and uh, there's a lot of debate concerning whether Judas was still there Whenever they actually observed the Lord's Supper, we know he was there originally. The Lord met there with the twelve, just as we got through reading a few minutes ago. So we know that he was there. We know the Lord uh, mentioned the fact that somebody is going to betray him. And Judas even responding, you know, is it I? And the Lord said, well, thou Thou sayest, but whenever we put all of the verses together, we know that we're told that Judas then went out from among them, and it is generally assumed by most Bible scholars that that in that intervening time between the uh, between the declaration that Jesus made about being betrayed and the instituting of the Lord's Supper, that he left the room. I tend to agree with that, that he was probably out of the room. Now, the number is not all of that important as far as I'm concerned. I don't see any great significance in that. But who he was meeting with is absolutely crucial because he was meeting with you say, well, he met with his disciples or the apostles. Well, yes, that's true. But who were they? Well, according to 1 Corinthians in chapter number 12, they constituted the first church. So you see, when we talk about the Lord's Supper being a church ordinance, 
this is the this is the pattern that we were given. This is not something they went out and uh, opened to the public. You know, now listen, keep this in mind. The Lord loves everyone, right? But he didn't invite the whole world. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to do something really special. I'm going to institute the Lord's Supper. We don't have enough room in this building, so we're going to go out here in a 40-acre field, and I want you to invite all of your friends and all of your relatives and bring them, and we're going to, we're going to institute the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's so important. Nobody ought to miss it. But he didn't do that. He met with the church, and, and they, they were the only ones. And, and that, you see, that did not include a lot of other believers because there were a lot of believers other than the apostles. There were, were many, and yet none of them were invited to this moment. Now, the reason this is so important is because a lot of folks have the idea, and they have been taught, that uh, the Lord's something, uh, Supper is something that uh, that we can do as individuals. I've heard of people just individually taking it upon themselves. Maybe they'd be on a trip and out of town somewhere and just maybe in their hotel room uh, observing the Lord's Supper. As you know, it is very common for some people to, uh, as the Catholics would say, take the sacraments whenever they're in the in the hospital, maybe on their deathbed, and the uh, the priests would go to them and uh, and uh, serve communion to the people. And, you know that might impress a lot of people. Like, boy, that you know that's the way we ought to be: uh, open and loving and kind and embrace everyone. But, folks, that is totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. This is not an ordinance for the individual. This is for corporate worship, members of the same congregation. And we'll talk about that at another time, but I'll just mention it here in order to prove my point. And that is the fact that church discipline goes along together with a proper observance of the Lord's Supper. And the church not only has the power to discipline its members, as we often use the word, you know, excommunicate members, uh, but we have the responsibility to do that when they are living in open sin and rebellion against God and refuse to do anything about it and to change their lifestyle, then the church is, is obligated to take action against them, not to punish them, but rather for the purpose of correcting them and restoring them to fellowship with the Lord. Now listen, nobody has the power or the ability to do that other than a church. We And by the way, we, and I as the pastor of this church, I have absolutely no authority whatsoever over any member of First Baptist Church or Second Baptist Church or Faith Family Church or any of the other Baptist churches in this area. And we could vote all we want in regards to their members saying, oh, we know one of your members that's doing this and that and totally contrary to the Scripture, and we talk to them, they won't listen to us, and so we're going to exercise discipline against them. Well, you can't do that. They're not a member of this church. I mean, that'd be like you coming down the road and spanking my kids. I'm not letting, letting you know right now you're going to have a problem whenever you do that because they're under my authority, you see. We don't have any authority over anybody else. And so this is not something that we do as individuals. Many years ago, 
Pat Boone, back whenever, he, the best I remember when he first started talking about being a Christian and he was whole crusades and what have you in different places and Bible studies and uh, and, and then people make professions of faith and they would baptize them. And I remember the one article that I had was at uh, the Hired Johnson's Motel where he was baptizing them out in the swimming pool. Now, listen, you can be baptized in a swimming pool. And it could be Hired Johnson's or it can be Motel 6. If they even have a swimming pool at Motel 6. Doesn't make any difference where the... It doesn't make any difference where it is. You could be scripturally baptized there, but it'd have to be by the authority of the Lord's church. Anybody can print money, but it's counterfeit, right? Unless you have the authority to do it. And so when it comes to the Lord's Supper, only a true church has the, the authority, the right, the responsibility to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper. This is important because, and it really hits home with me, because we had a very sweet person uh, some time ago that uh, a guest in the church that was coming on a regular basis, and it got so that, uh, and, and, and by the way, I'm not saying this to be critical of her. I'm looking around, seeing if she's here, and if she, if she was, I'd say the same thing, because she's a very, very sweet, wonderful uh, woman. But she was continually wondering when we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. When we're going to observe oh, the church I come from, we do it every week. And I, I told her we don't do it every week, and uh, you know, and uh, we do it as a church. It's something that, and I didn't go into a lot of detail. She wasn't a member or anything. But to make a long story short, she just quit coming. Now, that's sad. I wish she would continue coming. I know Brother Kenneth talked to her then later on, and we hoped that that would do some good and she would see the need. But the point I'm trying to make is, if you're not a member of the Lord's church, then you have no place at the Lord's table. And there's a difference between being a part of God's family and being a part of the Lord's church. You become a member of God's family the very moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, right then. You are as much a child of God as you ever will be. But it's one thing to be a member of God's family, another thing to be a member of the Lord's church. I think we'd surely all agree with that. And so you, whenever you say, well, yeah, but it just seems so unfair that you would exclude other good Christian people from observing the Lord's Supper, uh, whenever, whenever you observe it, it seems like they ought to be invited to the Lord's table too, not if they're not a member of this church. Listen, we're going to talk about that a whole lot more later on, but I'm bringing it up now because it's important that we understand who was present. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he set some first in the church apostles. They constituted the first church. It was established while Jesus was here during his earthly ministry. He established the church. He gave authority to the church. He gave the great commission to the church. He authorized the church to discipline their members and to, and to, uh, uh, to serve the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so it is a church ordinance. It's not something we do as individuals. Now, maybe the big question and really the most simple one is why was it instituted? 
and 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 we're going to deal with that extensively later on. But turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're just going to read a few verses here that I think sums up rather well exactly what we're talking about as to the purpose of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 23. And Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. And notice, folks, that is the key right there where he says, in remembrance of me. That tells us why the Lord's Supper was instituted. It is a memorial to remind us of the greatness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that being the case, we need to learn all we can about it. We need to observe it as carefully as possible. And that's the purpose of these instructions for the next few weeks because, you know, I I, I want each and every one of us to be uh, familiar with it. I want each and every one of us to have the right attitude about it. And most of all, I want each and every one of us to be so overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of God to think that He would give His only begotten Son who died on the cross at Calvary. I, I mean, listen, this tells us that that Jesus is what worship is all about. Whether we're singing a song or observing the ordinances or whatever we're doing, it's like the little chorus says, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. And God help us if we dare make it about anything else other than about Him. You know, one of the surest signs that we need a revival is not, is not whether or not we are well informed in the doctrines. Now, that's important. It's extremely important that we have a proper understanding of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. But let me tell you, you can have a good understanding of all of the major cardinal doctrines and be as cold and lifeless and dead as a hammer. When we, as old Vans Havner used to say, and he preached a sermon about losing the wonder. When we lose the wonder, we can sing amazing grace, and it's not really all that amazing. You know, we just lose the wonder, the excitement, the joy is missing out of our heart. It tells us that something is horribly wrong in our life. And I'm telling you, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it ought to be a reminder of all of the great things that Jesus Christ has done for us. We Listen, we shouldn't need anything else to get us excited. Think about all that God has provided for us, this beautiful building. My, it's so so wonderful. All of these great people. (laughs) Yeah. I started to try to help our ushers out there. I'm going to put a knot on some heads of some of these boys if they don't straighten up and fly right. But 
Listen, I know kids will be kids too. But whenever, and it's easy for us to look around and say, well, you know, I think, oh, so-and-so's must be backslidden. They don't do this or they don't do that. Well, maybe they are. But have you ever stopped to think about what a wonderful group of people we have here in the church as a whole? We ought to thank God for that and be so grateful for all the Lord has done. And, And that ought to thrill our heart to such an extent you know, that that we praise God with every ounce of the breath that we have within us. But whenever we come together at the Lord's table and we partake of those elements and we reflect back on that sacrifice, wow, that's, uh, that, that, that is just something that's more special than anything else I can think of. You know, you take that the early churches, by the way, you think about them, those early Christians worshiping in the catacombs. I mean, they didn't have soft, comfy pews. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have, you know, all of the creature comforts that we do today and what have you. And, uh, and I'll tell you, the reason, the reason they were able to accomplish what they did was because Jesus Christ was the centerpiece of absolutely everything in their life. They were enthralled at the very thought that they had such a great Savior. And and I, I hope that if, if that's not the way that you feel, by the time we get through with these messages and we actually observe the Lord's Supper, I, I pray that you'll be more appreciative, more grateful for His grace than you've ever been at any time in all of your life. I'm so glad that back whenever I was first saved that I had a pastor that stressed the importance of the Lord's Supper and I'll never forget going in and the first time didn't know what to expect. The lights were lowered. There was no loud music. Everything was quiet and still and and, and uh, we had just a time of meditation and reading the scriptures and prayer and, and it made such an impression on me that I've never got over it. And, uh, and, and I want it to be that way for every single person here. And, and as you leave here tonight and you think about the greatness of your Savior, tell someone, tell someone, because everybody doesn't know what you know about Jesus. They ought to, they need to, but they don't. And I hope you'll tell someone one of our members said earlier they they had uh, hoped to bring someone here tonight and uh, and the best that they knew that the at least one of the people that had never trusted Christ as their savior I was so hoping that would happen and yet something come up and happened and they didn't show up uh, you you be much in prayer that not only that person but the the the, uh, the other night, whenever it was mentioned, uh, help help me out here. The the brother uh, brother uh, Crystal Spratt's brother, and she mentioned, pray for my brother. He's unsaved. He's unsaved, and and you know we don't have any trouble praying for people that's got cancer and heart disease and things like that, do we? And we ought to. But boy, when somebody's unsaved, that's as bad as it gets. 
and we need to we need to do everything in our power to reach folks. Listen, that's I haven't forgot what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and it being a reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. The Bible says he died for all, and uh, and then he turns right around and sends us where into the whole world. Why? Because whosoever believeth. Amen? Sometimes, you know, we have a missionary come in from some far, far away place. We expect that missionary to go over there and to tell people about Jesus and win them to Christ. And if he, you know, if he, if he said, well, you know, I'm really... I'm not that interested in doing that. I, I'm conducting some Bible studies and I'm writing some literature and what have you. Uh, we wouldn't be impressed enough to support him for a second, you know. But a lot of times we expect one thing out of that missionary and something else out of ourselves. So tell someone about Jesus this week. Let's all stand together and uh, I, I don't know what God might be speaking to your heart about tonight. We were blessed and thrilled again this morning whenever we learned that that uh, one trusted Christ, Johnny, come to know Christ as his Savior. Next Sunday morning he'll be following the Lord in baptism. And, and there might be someone else here tonight. Whenever we left, Brother Kenneth uh, was saying to me, you know, and uh, uh, just felt like maybe we ought to sing another verse. Well, this is the other verse. If if you were here this morning and you didn't come forward and God's dealing with your heart about your uh, lack of salvation, I hope you'll do so just now. So, Tim, lead us in a song, please. <laughs>